today we are celebrating the resurrection and it's like the best Sunday. I think the incarnation when, when, when the word became flesh and made its, his dwelling among us that we celebrate at Christmas time. Uh, and then, and then this last week of Christ's life as he rounded out his three year ministry, um, is some of the most significant moments that we, that we celebrate as Christians. And we're celebrating an embodied faith is what we're doing. You know, Jesus came in the flesh in, in, in Jesus Christ. God came in the flesh. The word that was at the beginning with God and through whom the whole world was created came and made his home among us, made his tent among us, um, living <clears throat> for, for 30 years, uh, taking care of his family, becoming a tecton, becoming a, a tradesman uh, of some kind. The carpenter is popularly thought. Uh, supporting his his mother and his family uh, as his father apparently died uh, pretty soon after he was he was uh, when he was a child and then launching into a three-year ministry which was just this powerful concentrated uh, time where where we saw all the things that Jesus grew and learned and, and walked into in terms of his identity as the Messiah uh, were actualized as he called his 12 disciples and then walked with them for three years confounded them, confused them, taught them uh, for, for three years, and finally gave his life, as he said he would, willingly as a, as a sacrifice for us and all that would follow after, after him. And he prays in the end of John, I believe it's John 21, he prays, he prays for his disciples. He prays for the early church of Acts. And then he prays for those that will believe the message following uh, the first century of the church. He prays for us his high priestly prayer in John 21. I encourage you to read that. You can see the vision of Jesus Christ's ministry continuing through the church and the world today. And here we are, recipients of this, of this great privilege to be a part of the body of Christ and be ministering in Jesus' name and seeing his ministry move forward. Amen? Amen. Um, so, so, like I said, we, t we tend to focus in the church on, on the incarnation, on the birth of Jesus. And then, and then we focus on his death. I would encourage you, and, I, and we will be doing this in the, in the coming year, focusing on his life, his teachings, the things he actually taught. You remember the Great Commission in Matthew 20, 28, he said, before he ascended into heaven, he said, um, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. We're going to be looking at, in, in, in the near future, what did Jesus command? What did Jesus teach? And how can we um, get a fresh look at that and move forward in the church as we as we follow him? And as, as as this faith is once again embodied in the church, embodied in the church. That's what this is, embodied faith. But today, we're, I, I, I want to, I, I do want to focus on the last few days, the last days of Jesus's life, and then culminating his resurrection. I want to look at, at his death. I want to look at the tomb that he was in for three days, lifeless, um, dead, fully dead. And then look at his resurrection, which we're celebrating this morning. So we're going to backtrack a little bit in the story, uh, going back to Good Friday. We're going to read from Luke 23, 44 through Luke 24, 12, and just um, read this whole account. Luke. 23:44. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. 
darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all of those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come to Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how the body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Luke 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still with you in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran into the tomb. <clears throat> Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself, what had happened. So what had happened, Peter? Well, he was risen. And there are several women who testified to this fact. But the men didn't listen. Um, they didn't listen to these, these first preachers of the gospel, the good news of Jesus' resurrection and victory. And even Peter, upon seeing it, he, he wondered to himself, what, what happened? Well, he rose. The women were right. Today's meditation on this truly unique Easter that we are experiencing together is about the amazing things that God does in the darkness. And darkness is a, is a phrase I'm using to describe Jesus' tomb and, and the darkness, which Luke says covered the land as Jesus died in the hours that he died, the darkness. The darkness that, that put out the light of the very sun. It was, so, it was so thoroughly dark in the darkness inside the sealed tomb. 
Now, what could be more hopeless than a man's final cries as he gives his last breath, as Jesus did on the cross? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and then giving up his spirit. Now, what could be more hopeless and dark than a tomb, a sealed tomb? And after Jesus' resurrection, or I'm sorry, his crucifixion, his lifeless body lay all alone, without witnesses, without fanfare, without oxygen, sealed, alone, isolated in a tomb, cloaked in darkness for three full days. As we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, which, which we know comes, let us consider this morning the darkness of the tomb of our Savior and what it tells us about God and the way that God works. This is our meditation today. Darkness is used very often as a figure of speech in our culture and also the culture of the biblical writers. Sometimes it works well, sometimes it's problematic. Um, dark things are not necessarily bad things, but if we're not careful, we could take this figure of speech and just attribute it to only bad and dark things, which is not the case. But this is widely used in our culture, in the scriptures. Uh, in, in the scriptures as well as in, pop, in popular culture, darkness is often equated with some kind of hidden evil. Darkness is anything that scares, that we do not want to be a part of, you know, death, pandemics, fears, absence of God, fear of death. Darkness is like a junk drawer for all of these things. And in general, darkness is thought to represent something, something negative, bad, or wrong, while light is described as, uh, as the opposite of that. Um, light is described as all that is good and right. The scriptures themselves say in 1 John 1, 5, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And we know what that means. God's light, in this case, means his holiness. There's, there's no shadow, there's no speck of darkness on God's holiness. He is holy, holy. God of gods, holy, holy. And we affirm that that's true. That's why God sent Jesus after all. God sent Jesus to fulfill the law, as we saw in Romans 8, to fulfill it perfectly. God's holy and just requirements in the law on our behalf so that we could come to God freely and have a relationship with God and have salvation from sin and death and the law um, through that. But it all starts with this idea, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. This is a powerful uh, picture in scripture. Darkness, we understand, is a figure of speech, but it's a figure of speech that is sometimes not so helpful when we start applying it and saying, everything that's dark is bad, it's not helpful. And when we consider our own experiences in our lives, if darkness is thought to be all that is bad and all that is not God, then subconsciously we can begin to believe that we can only truly find God or at least God's best for us when things are light and things are good around us, when things are going great, that's where God is. And when things are holy and good, everything's fine, that's where God is. But then some of us feel like we have to be in the light all the time in order to experience God. But truthfully, some of God's most amazing works have happened in the dark, have happened in the dark. Often, because of our own sinful tendencies, we make decisions that bring us into a dark place. Sometimes, 
through no fault of our own that we can that we can discern, we we, are, we find ourselves plunged into darkness, into depression, into whatever things that things that really make us feel alone and, and dark. And I want you to know that in the darkness is a place where God is comfortable going this morning. And in fact, in the darkness is where God often does his very best and most amazing work. In the tomb, he does his most miraculous work. This should function for you, I hope, as a great source of hope this morning. All we're going through in our culture and all that you are going through in your personal life and all you've been through to think that those dark times of depression, of loss, where we've been plunged into darkness, of, of sin, whatever it might be, that those are places God is comfortable going and comfortable working. And often his best work is done in those places. So to meditate on this idea, we're going to start with Psalm 139, 9 to 13. This is David. David's love song about how he cannot escape the presence of God no matter where he goes and how God knows him fully and intricately. We, we're going to pick it up in Psalm 139.9. He says, If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. So here the psalmist David, he describes the darkness as a place hidden, isolated, and alone, thought to be apart from God's reach in this poem. And David is afraid that if he begins to disappear into the darkness and becomes hidden, that hope will be lost. But he concludes with this very interesting phrasing in verse, verse 12. He says, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. All that is fearful to us, death, sickness, separation, loss of loved ones, disease, becoming lost ourselves, and the fear of death, all of our fears, it turns out that none of these evidence of, evidences of darkness are a problem for our loving and personal God. Because the minute we cry out to God, we see that our darkness begins to shine like the day, because darkness is light to God. God is not intimidated by these things and unable to come into them. In fact, much of what God's greatest works have happened in the darkness. Directly after this breakthrough that David talks about, of, of realizing that no matter where he goes, even if he's plunged into darkness, the guy is with him, um, David goes immediately to another picture of darkness, the womb. Did you know that it wasn't until the 1950s that we began to be able to see inside an expected mother to witness the life moving and growing inside. When our, when our two-year-old Naomi was, was growing inside my wife, uh, the doctors thought there was some kind of issue happening, some kind of bleed. And so they started doing an ultrasound almost every visit that we went to the hospital. And we got to see this baby grow, you know, on, on film, you know, during the whole entire pregnancy. It's a completely amazing thing and a real miracle. 
But this is something that's only been available since the late 50s of, of uh, 20th century. Before that, the growth and development of a child inside of its mother, um, the life was a completely hidden occurrence. Only God could see what was happening in the darkness inside. And what was happening is very good. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful thing happening in the darkness of the womb. So as, as David the psalmist comments that when God shows up, darkness is as light to God, in the very next sentence, he says that, of course, this is true because God also knit him together in the darkness of his mother's womb. In the darkness, God has been working all along. In the darkness is some of God's best work, most impressive work. Darkness is as light to God. And some of God's most amazing work happens in the dark, whether it's in the womb or in the tomb. How is that possible? How is that possible? Certainly, it seems impossible. This is what drives us to worship God, this highly personal God uh, who, who knits us together so intricately. It just blows our mind. But how is this possible? You know, theologically, uh, when I was studying theology prior to becoming a pastor, in my Hebrew class, our teacher had us memorize Hebrew words, which is the primary language of the Old Testament, that are only used in reference to God. So these words are only used to describe God, who God is, what God does. They're ver verbs and names that are only used to describe God. And one of the words used to describe God is only used in 15 verses in the Bible. And it's never used for anyone else except for God. So this is a special word. The word is Arafel. And this word means darkness. A word that's used, yes, 1 John 5, 1, 5 says, God is light in him, there is no darkness at all. That We know what that means. It's a figure of speech talking about holiness and righteousness. But here we see in the Hebrew language is a word that only pertains to God, and it is Arafel. Can you imagine someone saying, behold, the darkness of God? Isn't that a strange concept? But then we remember, darkness is as light to God. Darkness is as light to God. Behold, the darkness of God. It's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, a word used only to describe God, it translates as darkness. Darkness is a descriptor of God. And it means a heavy, dark cloud of unknowing and mystery, um, thick, darkness, the same darkness that covered uh, the world when Jesus died on the cross. And as we will see, a darkness that has accompanied God through many creative works in salvation history. And I think you'll be encouraged to, to consider with me the powerful works of God's RFL, God's dark darkness. Consider these works. In creation, all the way back to Genesis 1, 1 and 2, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And from John's gospel, we know that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, that Jesus Christ is the word of God, creating the heavens and the earth, the Trinity working together to create the heavens and the earth. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Formless, empty, dark, like the inside of a tomb. And it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Prior to the creation of light, God's Spirit delighted to, to begin the work of creation in darkness without any other witnesses than himself to see it, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the community of the Trinity. And it was good. Actually, God said, 
it was good. And then when he created humans, he said it was very good. But he did his this amazing work of creation from darkness, in darkness. Genesis 15, 5, skipping ahead a few chapters. God took Abraham, the, the original patriarch the, the, that would become the head of God's people, Israel. He took him outside, and though, though Abraham and his wife were unable to bear children, God said, look up, at the look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And then even later, um, into the night, in the darkness that covered the world at that time, Abraham falls asleep. And God says in verses 12 and 21, 12 through 21, that, that God is, promises Abraham a promised land and a promised heir and a covenant with him and his people for all time. A covenant that stands today. God made a covenant with Abraham while Abraham was sleeping in the dark. Think about that. Think about the God who, who does such crazy uh, promises to a sleeping man and pledges and swears by himself. God swore by himself that he would do this for Abraham, and he did. His descendants, numerous as the stars in the sky in the dark, uh, a promised land, a promised people for all time. These, these, are, these are covenants God made in the dark with Abraham. Skipping to... Uh, Genesis 28, we see a night when Jacob, who was Isaac's son and Abraham's grandson, and, and, and Jacob saw a mysterious ladder in the night from heaven with angels ascending and descending on it. And he met the Lord in this powerful darkness. Um, Jacob met the Lord in this powerful darkness. Surely the Lord was in this place, says Jacob. And he lays down on a rock. He's using a rock as a pillow, and he just experiences God's presence in the dark, in this dark place. And God ratified the covenant that he made with, with Abraham and with Isaac to Jacob, saying, there's a promise of land, there's a covenant that God is going to make with your people, your descendants will be numerous. He ratifies this covenant with Jacob. It was also a night when Jacob wrestled with God, and God gave him a new name and a new identity and blessed him with the benefits of the covenant he promised Abraham with before in Genesis 32. It was that night that that man rescued with, wrestled with Jacob, and that man turned out to be God. And then he made a promise to him. It was that night in the dark. Think about this. In Exodus 14.21, we read about, uh, as God had prophesied would happen, Israel went into slavery in Egypt for, for years, for hundreds of years. Finally, God is setting them free from, from slavery in Egypt. And they are marching along under Moses' authority. You kind of, you might know the story. Um, they're marching along and it was, then they come up to the Red Sea. And it was at nighttime. And God delivered his people from the Egyptian people that were pursuing them through a great salvation that night. It says in, uh, in verse in 1421, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left. God delivered his people all that night as Moses lifted his hands 
is with a great salvation. And something you need, need to know is that, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew likens the salvation that Jesus brought to the exodus from Egypt. The imagery is all there, that God has created a way for his people to, to be saved, to be delivered from sin and death from their enemies, uh, just as, as he did through Moses. And this happened at night, all through the night. Another interesting thought from just a few chapters later in Exodus 16, uh, the, the Israelites are wandering in the desert uh, following Moses. They're wondering what they're going to be eating during this time. And God provides a wafer-like bread that tasted like, like a little like honey, a, little, a strange kind of um, carb, I guess you could say. Um, he provides this thing called manna, which literally translates to, what is it? What is this stuff? And he provides that manna during the night. Well, while the whole company of them is sleeping, God provides sustenance and life-saving food, this glutinous material called manna, and every morning his people go out and gather the manna that God had provided for them during the night. So we see, as you can see through just this very brief trot through the Old Testament, through parts of, of the scriptures, almost every time that God either makes a promise, transforms a person's identity, gives them a new name, makes a provision for, or delivers or saves his people, it happens in darkness. It happens at night. And that word, Arafel, which is only used in reference to God and means darkness, is the same word that's used when God gives the law to Moses in Deuteronomy 4.11. And we'll, we'll read 4.11 and 5.22. And I believe this is the same darkness that covered the world when Christ died on the cross. And I'll tell you why. In Deuteronomy 4.11, we read about this mountain. It says... You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens with black clouds and deep arafel, darkness. This was God. This was God's very presence. It wasn't sin. It wasn't, you know, anything that wasn't holy. It was God's presence. And there was a powerful darkness and arafel on that mountain that the people and Moses could feel. And it was so intimidating, the writer of Hebrews said, that the people begged to not have to interact with it. And they begged Moses, go up and do, do the interaction for us. We're too, even though God beckoned them forward. So Deuteronomy 4.11, this, this Arafel uh, was, was over, over the people. And then Deuteronomy 5.22, we see that the, com the, the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep Arafel, the darkness. And God added nothing, and then Moses added nothing more. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them, gave them to the people. This is the Arafel, and this was the time when God was giving the law, the Ten Commandments, to the Israelites. And it was accompanied by this deep darkness. And now we read Luke 23, 44 to 46. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until about three in the afternoon. You have to understand. This is not Hebrew, this is Greek, so it's a different word, but this is a similar kind of usage that darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, but the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When, when he had said this, he breathed his last. It is in the darkness, in this Arafel, that God not only uh, sent provision, but also salvation. The law came from God's Arafel, and then the salvation that Christ brings with his death on the cross comes from 
the Arafel. The darkness of the tomb where Jesus' lifeless body, which was sealed in, the, in, the, in this chamber for three full days, was resurrected by God's power in his Holy Spirit for the salvation of anyone who would turn to Jesus Christ and trust and follow him. Listen, Jesus, think about this. Jesus' body was sealed in a tomb for three days, fully dead, in the darkness. And no one actually saw him resurrect. It was just like in the act of creation when God created the heavens and the earth and, the dark, and hovered over the darkness, just like when God gave the law to Moses and countless other incidences, God rose Christ to life in the darkness by his spirit in power with no audience, just God. And that resurrection is the guarantee of salvation to anyone who looks to Christ. God's greatest single work the resurrection of Jesus took place in the dark against all odds. This should be a great comfort to anyone who is coming to this Easter celebration during these days of uncertainty. Because anything from a pandemic to your personal sin problem and everything in between, all the darkness that we are that we are in in our lives, whatever that darkness looks like, whatever boogeyman is in our junk drawer of darkness, God is not separate from that. God steps into that. And by his spirit, he does his best work in that place as we seek after him. I know some of you are from, from this church, from the New Life Fellowship body, this family. Others of you, I have, I have no idea uh, who you may be, but you've tuned in to this broadcast this morning, either to follow a family tradition of attending an Easter service each year, or perhaps to hear a word of encouragement through a dark time. My encouragement to you is this, the darkness, your greatest fears, your greatest shame, your worst life choices, this pandemic we are going through, the specter of, of, of fear of death and sickness and loss, whatever darkness is for you, I want you to know that not only are some of God's most amazing works evident in the darkest places, but one of God's names, his descriptors, is actually darkness, RFL, and nothing can stop God from saving, sometimes especially in the darkest of circumstances and places. And God does not need an audience to do this work. God does this work because of his heart of love for each individual that comes to him. God is not after primarily recognition by, by hundreds of people, you know, being in front of a giant crowd. His humble self-giving love is expressed to the individual because of his, because for him, for God, it's about love. And Jesus, you know, though he was God in the flesh, he, he did not, he, he did not act as someone who was God. Instead, he took all of his power, all of his authority, and he leveraged that to serve individual people, to serve the disciples. That was God's method. That's who God is. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And God you know, he's not primarily about recognition. He's about love. He's about reaching people and doing a work in their life. And the worship that we give to God when he does that work in our lives, it's organic. It comes from a place of God touched me. God reached out to me. You know, praise his name. It's not a mandate where we're, oh, I have to worship God today. I have to seek him. I have to read his word. I have to worship him. No, it comes from a heart of gratefulness and overflow because of the work God did in our lives and the and the the careful work of salvation 
that he brings and the light that he brings. Um, the God who is sometimes described as darkness is not intimidated by your darkness. I guarantee you the darkness of God, uh, this, this cloud of unknowing and mystery and power um, is greater, is a greater match to anything in your life than you can imagine. So whatever your darkness, I want you to remember, God's salvation comes in darkness. When Jesus died on the cross, the world was covered in darkness because God was reminding the people of when he gave his Ten Commandments. And God was saying that Jesus' death on the cross fulfilled his law for all the people who will turn to Jesus. And God rose Jesus to life, we saw in Romans 8, by the Holy Spirit in the darkness of the tomb without an audience to show you that if you will turn to God, who is sometimes called the darkness, even your darkest dark is light to him. Even, uh, and even in the place of death and hopelessness, the light can come streaming in because of God's great power, perhaps especially so. Jesus Christ is the end of the law for all who put their faith in him. He is also the end of hopelessness because all things are possible for the God who raises the dead. If our God can raise the dead, he can do anything. And it says in Romans 8, the same spirit that raised Christ to life lives in you, and he will also give life to your mortal body, your deepest darkness. God is in it. So as Ben prepares to lead us in, in, in this closing song, he is risen. I'm going to share with you a doxology from Jude. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages now and forevermore. Amen.